Hey, welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And this is episode number 85, number 85. And uh, yeah, it's been about two weeks or so since we've uh, actually done one of these. And, um, you know, a lot of interesting things have happened. <laughs> the, <laughs> the Biden criminal enterprises, the Biden crime families out there. And apparently this is a bigger, much bigger scandal than, than anybody thought it was, at least initially. You know, and, and you have to be very naive to think that this isn't, in some ways, business as usual in Washington, D.C. You know, selling influence, selling access, selling all this stuff, and, and people just taking the cuts of, of ungodly amount of cash uh, for this, and and you saw it, you know, a guy gets kicked out of the uh, the navy <laughs> for for smoking crack, and literally a couple of months later, he's making you know a hundred thousand dollars a month from you know a Ukrainian energy company. I mean that that just doesn't happen um, as a matter of chance or just a piece of good luck or something else to someone who has no expertise in that field. It only happens because of who his last name is, who his daddy is, and because of the crooked connections of uh, uh, his daddy and his uncle. I mean, it's just, it's ugly, it's crappy, but that's what it is. That's exactly what it is. So we'll see if the criminal enterprises uh, um, get elected or, or how this how this happens. Uh, I think it's going to be, it's, it's anyone's guess now as to what happens, so... Please go out and vote. You know where your rights are. You know who's in. Uh, um, you know who's who's got your best interest at heart. So, I'll leave it at that. Okay, another thing that's uh, pretty interesting, and this goes into the "I told you so" file. BATF is looking at these pistols and pistol braces, and the pistols they're really looking at are these ones that are at least designed after or made after a a rifle action a semi-automatic rifle action and it's AR-15 pistols you know kind of the MP5 pistols you know these things out there that people put braces on you know you put a brace on one and you put one of those binary triggers in it and you have something that is in some ways very similar to a class 3 weapon so you know they're they're obviously going to take these things away i mean obviously these are this, there's going to be a push and these things are going to be made um, people are going to be told to register them as class 3 weapons or dispose of them that's that's what it's going to be um, i don't really have um, a real reason why I don't think that they're that big a deal. I was hoping that these things would kind of usher in the the slow demise of the SBR, the short-barreled rifle regulations that are out there. That that perhaps um, you know you could you could sit there and say, look, the, 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 all the restrictions on short-barreled rifles make no sense because there are other things that approximate them that are totally legal and have been around and and are obviously proving not to be a problem. So we'll see how this uh, how this shakes out. I, I have a very funny feeling, though, that those things, this is starting to smell like the old AR-15 auto sear back in the 80s, um, that all of a sudden they're just going to say, no, these are class three, and, and uh, here's what you have to do to, to keep it. And that's what it's going to be. 
on the other side, uh, if they're going to do that, the only trade would be, well, then you need to open up the NFA for, uh, for all these great things and uh, let us register legal machine guns again as we could before 1986. That would be a pretty fair trade. So we'll see how it goes. Um, don't know that I really, really, um, um, I, I myself do not have these things, but I can really see. I was actually getting a case of the ones for the, you know, the MP5 pistol with a brace. You know, you could put a suppressor on it. You could get a binary trigger and have kind of a cool little thing there that doesn't have to be uh, registered. Well, the, the silent, the suppressor would have to be registered, but the other parts would not. And it would be a, a very, very cool thing to have. But I think they're going to crack down on those. And I think that's unfortunate. And um, should the should the side of good prevail in the uh, in the election, that's something we can uh, basically... Uh, start demanding from them is that these things the confusing byzantine puzzle of gun laws need to be simplified and they need to be simplified in our favor not heavier restriction but more freedom that's what needs to happen okay we have uh, <laughs> walmart i i saw that i saw the deal i saw the the headline walmart pulls guns and ammo from their shelves and I thought oh, this is another deal where it's about liberalism it's about them you know being against the Second Amendment and everything then when I actually read the article it's they're pulling it off and I don't think it's permanent but they're doing it off because of the civil unrest they're just afraid of looters they're afraid people are going to go in there uh, target knowing that they have a gun counter knowing that they have guns and ammunition and go in there and try to loot those things so they're saying hey we're taking them out of the store so that we're not targets um you know there there are it seems to me that there has been an increase in the uh in in kind of gun stores being targeted for just regular robberies and as well uh, you know trying to people trying to illicitly arm themselves so we'll see how this goes, but right now, um, I actually, I don't know that I'm all that upset about it. I kind of understand it, and if they don't do it in all their stores, I, I will know if they do it in the store that's like close to where I am because, you know, there's no real danger of riots and looting there. So if they do it from all their stores or if it's just select ones in uh, certain high-risk markets, that's who I would do, but... Sometimes even that sends a message in and of itself that they may not want to. They may not want to send, so they may do it for everybody. But right now, Walmart's pulling it. But they didn't say it was permanent, so who knows? Uh, um, it could be could be back as soon as uh, as soon as there's a national will, and there's some fortitude, and there's some resolve to crack down on these people, and then then we will have, you know, a stable inner cities and stable society once again so right now i think it's a little bit unstable you know i think that we have some political instability there's it's a, it's a bad thing and there's no in spite of what senior biden says uh, there's he's not going to heal that by coming in confiscating people's guns and all this again you know you know harris does the you know you, the, the clips of her are well a buyback well, I'm sorry, you can't buy them back because you never owned them in the first place. To buy something back means that they had it, sold it to me, and now they want to 
buy it back. That's that's not that's not anything. That's just a that's just a a bullshit term for confiscation. And they'll give you some sort of compensation, which you know as well as I do will not be satisfying. So uh, that's that is where all that is. But Walmart pulling guns and ammo out of fear off their shelves. Now there's one more. <laughs> there's one more thing, and this is this is awesome. This is an awesome story here. Costco. You know, Costco has kind of gotten weird. You know, they pulled. Didn't they pull some pimento cheese because somebody had insulted Antifa or? Or some some sort of deal like that. There was maybe it was Black Lives Matter or Antifa, but whoever owned some pimento cheese company, they decided we're pulling your stuff off because of political statements they tweeted. Um, ridiculous! Absolutely, tweeting anything in this day and age is ridiculous. Twitter is a criminal enterprise. You saw from those people who are uh, um, were up on the hill testifying. They're, they're a bunch of dweebs, twits panty waists i mean whatever whatever you know uncomfortable term you can apply to those to those uh, girly men um and they're in charge of this social media nonsense and so but anyway the funny part of this story is costco has pulled this one brand of coconut milk because they were using monkeys as forced labor and, and and I had to read that, you know, it, it, it had, you know, it pulling it because of forced labor and then monkeys. And I, that was the headline. And I go, I got to read this. This it can't be. It can't be that I thought first. Well, maybe they they're, you know, grabbing kids or, you know, they're they're homeless children. And maybe in some of these um, developing countries where, you know, coconuts grow. I, I don't know exactly where coconuts grow all the places, but I know it's kind of in the tropics. There may be some you know, underdeveloped countries where they're, they're, you know, forcing kids to go harvest these things. And I'm like, hey, that that's wrong. Or maybe it's, it's young adults who can scamper up and down the trees and they, they make them uh, do that. But apparently they trained, it's not that at all. They trained monkeys to go up and, and pick these coconuts and I guess drop them on the ground. So that, that's monkey forced labor. And I'm, I'm sitting there going, well, Having grown up on a cattle ranch, I know a little bit about animal behavior, and I know that you can't force an animal to do anything, really. But you can induce it to do things with kind of the reward. You know, you can use the stick and the carrot. They have to have kind of an, a reward to do something. So, so I think this really may be a case of it's actually trained monkeys are being used and you could argue whether or not that's exploiting them if that is the case then i mean every draft horse is in forced labor every every mule is in forced labor and on and on and that's not even counting the the animals we raise to to eat to slaughter and eat you know chickens are then in forced labor you know they're forced to produce eggs so it's it's really a bizarre a bizarre concept of animal forced labor, but apparently Costco, and I'm, I have a Costco membership, and I'm probably going to cancel that thing. Those people have obviously gone over the edge. They obviously have bought into this. And now I'm not for animal cruelty. If people are being cruel to these monkeys who are going up and harvesting the coconuts, that's that's another matter. But that that requires some proof. And the other side of that coin is you're not going to get very far. 
if you treat them badly, if they're actually up there knocking these things loose, I think it's uh, incumbent on people to treat them, treat them better, make sure they're in good health and make sure that they get the, the rewards for uh, knocking, the, knocking the coconuts down and all that. The, the other thing is I, I also look at the scale when, you know, it's one thing to think of three or four monkeys climbing up trees, but how many, what are we really talking about here? Are we talking about hundreds of monkeys that are, that are going up into wherever the coconut forest is and knocking down thousands of coconuts? Because if you're selling coconut milk in Costco, chances are that's a fairly huge enterprise. You're, you're talking, and I don't know how much coconut milk a coconut yields, but just kind of from the size of it, it looks to me like about a pint, maybe, maybe a little more than that. I don't know, but so it seemed to me like you would have to harvest a fantastic amount of these things to get enough so that Costco can sell them in all of their distribution stores, which are nationwide. So we, we may be talking about <laughs> we may be talking about millions of coconuts here harvested by hundreds of thousands of monkeys. I don't know. So anyway, uh, the monkey forced labor, more to follow, but we'll see, uh, we'll see exactly how that happens. I'm, I'm still kind of waiting to see how that, how that works and where the proof of, of monkey abuse uh, comes in versus the monkey reward that they probably get for doing a good job. I don't know. Okay, leaving the monkeys behind, there's one more thing that we uh, have to kind of go through, and this is going to take a little bit of, of effort. But it's, it's raised its ugly head again, and it's this notion in especially handguns, rifles too, though, of obsolete and obsolescence. And the reason it, it, it kind of um, strikes a chord with me is, is because I, I just feel that the people who are talking about this have no idea what they are actually talking about. The terms obsolete means it's you know, it's essentially no good anymore. It's old fashioned and it's no good for its intended purpose because it has been totally eclipsed by much something much more efficient. Obsolescent means it has it has features that will not be reproduced in future designs because they are deemed to be less than optimal. So that's that's how it kind of plays to me. So when you look at something, and really these terms kind of came out, they're military, it was kind of mili always applied to military equipment. Things like you could have an obsolete tank. Certainly a tank that was made in 1918 was obsolete by 1940. You know, it just, it just was. I mean, it was too slow, the gun was too small, the armor was too thin, the design was poor. They had learned a lot about design so that they would never make a tank based on a 1918 design in 1940. They just wouldn't. So, you know, that's where that's obsolete. And it, it, aircraft are the same thing. You know, you have a a fighter that can go 250 miles an hour and it can climb to 20,000 feet and it has, you know, three rifle caliber machine guns as armament. Well, that is going to be obsolete when you have a fighter plane that can fly 400 miles an hour, carries six 50 caliber machine guns, and can fly and climb and operate at 40,000 feet, and also with a much longer range. I mean, 
that that earlier plane is just no good anymore. It, it's just no good anymore. That's the way it goes. And you have in between the two, you'll probably have some successive models that some of them are almost as good as the new plane, but some of them are probably closer in performance to the older plane. And that's obsolescence, you know, in various stages. Well, it gets applied to, we'll just take handguns. Anything that's not a plastic, fantastic 17-shot striker-fired pistol is deemed as obsolete. So revolvers are a, are a good example. People say revolvers are obsolete. Well, you could make a strong argument they are obsolete for many purposes, but for most purposes they are not. I mean, they're just they're just not. And you can take you can take a look if you want to look at obsolete handguns. You go back to okay, flintlock and percussion single shots. Um, outside of recreational purposes, uh, they are obsolete for defense. Woefully obsolete. <laughs> they, you know, nobody carries a matched pair of flintlocks for defense anymore. Nobody would think about it, even though people think they're cool and they may be and they're fun to shoot and they can exhibit, you know, great qualities of craftsmanship and everything else but nobody really uses them anymore and I think everybody would agree that's that's obsolete same thing with the even the percussion versions of the same guns you know hey it's two shots and that's that's it uh, you look at something else that's obsolete the percussion revolver even though it is still a good and fun recreational gun it is not something people would really use as a first choice uh, in in a defensive in a defensive role unless of course that's all they could get then that's not really a choice then is it so you you would say that that's that's there but you know if you're if you're walking through the woods anything you would use a 22 for a 22 long rifle handgun for you could easily use a uh, um, a, a Colt 36 Navy yeah, about the same weight about the same size bit more powerful uh just as accurate in many ways you know you'd have to be practiced with it but it's it's got a lot of the attributes you could you could use it as a trail gun there would be no no real problem with that but it's not a gun that you would use against a that you would choose to use against an armed attacker same as your 22 and we don't call 22s obsolete we don't we don't call them obsolescent we said that well for these other purposes they're fine they may be suboptimal for defense but they are you know certainly good for a lot of other things and i think even even for defense they're they're kind of coming into their own because of ammo costs and a few other things so it's just it's just not uh obsolete that's just that's just not well, you know, it's just not a good term to use towards something. Uh, revolvers, <clears throat> certainly for cowboy action shooting, uh, revolvers, single action revolvers are not obsolete. They are they are what's required. They are because they fit the historical envelope and the parameters of the uh, rules of the of the shooting contest. They are what's required. So they're not obsolete, not by a long shot. There's there's nothing is going to replace them. And their attributes, although in a modern handgun they would not be looked upon very favorably, uh, they are in fact uh, not going to be replaced by any later technology and keep the historical 
envelope of cowboy action shooting. So, so there you go on that. Uh, for modern guns, there is a list of features which make, which can make, be construed, I should say, uh, as making a gun obsolescent. And here are those features, kind of as I see them, just thinking about them. Um, one would be a heel magazine release. Um, that's not something you're going to see on future designs. That was something that kind of came out kind of after the button release, really. It kind of came out. It's, it's always kind of been around. But it kind of came out because in, in the quick combat reload was not really something people were looking at when they were designing that. And magazine retention in trench warfare or, you know, 60, 90, or 120 days of a very, very brutal, rough, gritty infantry combat was was not something, was something that was desirable. It was desirable to, to retain magazines. So uh, it was at that time desirable, but it is not desirable now. So <clears throat> we will not see that happening again anytime soon. So heel magazine release. Uh, a couple of other things you could look at are single action only designs such as the 1911, the Browning High Power, their scads of imitators, and every gun kind of based on that Browning system that has the, the you know, you could carry cocked and locked, but, you know, you it's single action, a single action automatic. Not too many of those are being made anymore. That, although I would say some of these little sneak guns, some of these little pocket rockets are, are kind of that way. So you can, you know, you can, you can say that, that that's not entirely true, but with a hand, with a striker, it may, it has some life in it, but with a hammer, the single action hammer type automatics are, that's probably a feature that you're not going to see too many more of. Um, it's not as bad as the heel magazine release, but it's there. Uh, same, same thing with single stack magazines. You see single stack magazine as something that does not possess the capacity people are looking for and capacity is seen as a very desirable trait so therefore uh, we want guns that do not have that and have a instead a reliable double stack magazine and thus can hold a lot more cartridges the uh, double action single action trigger that you see in guns like you know starting with the Walther P38 uh, certainly the Beretta 92, certainly the, the older Smith & Wesson Automatics 3959 series. Um, oh, and there's, there's a whole host of other ones that, that are out there that um, are legitimately very good guns, uh, you know, and you, but that is seen as less than desirable because of the uh, difference in the trigger pull between the first shot, double action, and the subsequent follow-up shots. So you see that as, as something less than desirable, and, and that is a mark of obsolescence, uh, because I don't know that you'll see too many more designs come out like that. You might might see a few more, and certainly some of the ones that are currently in production will will stay in production for a while and, and proliferate, but I don't know that any new gun designs are going to have that particular feature. Another feature that's kind of a, a mark of obsolescence, and this is one that Ugh, I hate it. Is the uh, the steel frames? Steel frames are seen as just non-essential excess weight. So guns like the Walther PP and PPK, because they're all steel construction, are seen. There are a few aluminum frame 
PPKs. They're really nice. Really super nice. Uh, those guns are seen as um, as basically being obsolescent so simply, simply because of the materials they're made out of and the weight that that uh, gives you. Plus they're, they're going to have a couple of the other features also. But um, I think another feature, other features that are seen as obsolescence are very, very weak centerfire cartridges. Uh, nobody's really making a 25 automatic anymore. Nobody's really, nobody's really hot on 32. You'll see, you'll see a few guns out there, but nobody's really hot on that. And certainly the older revolver cartridges, you know, 38 short Colt, um, 32 Smith and Wesson long, and and some of these other ones. Uh, there, there's no real enthusiasm for any of those things. So there, if you had a 32 long revolver. Um, you know, it's not going to be looked upon as something that uh, would be very desirable. It, it would have too many of these obsolescent features. Now, a lot of the, a lot of people think revolvers in general are obsolete. Double action revolvers. I completely disagree. They, they, what they give up in capacity, they bring with usually more powerful cartridges or cartridges that are, that are optimized. You can shoot a. A, a hollow point that would jam even the best, a hollow point bullet design, which would jam in even the best semi-automatics, will function quite normally in a revolver. So, you know, for a lot of people, the revolver has not become obsolete. Maybe policemen, most policemen wouldn't like to use it, but it is still, it is still really good out there and a really good choice for private citizens. So, where is all this going? I think it's going that obsolescence more things that are obsolete people can generally agree on they can generally agree when something is obsolete and it's kind of back into the uh, realm of just being done because it's used because it's fun or it's entertaining or, or whatever else you know muzzle loading hawken rifles are, are in that muzzle loading flintlock rifles are, are in that you know everybody can agree that's that's it uh, obsolescence is really defined by the intended purpose and whether or not the features that that firearm has um, prevent it from being successfully or optimally used for its intended purpose. And if the intended purpose is recreation, then it's a lot broader and it's a lot more forgiving environment as far as um, obsolescence goes. Uh, I would even I would even tell you though that. Um, things that are looked upon as obsolescent and even obsolete are still very very effective and can still be used quite a bit I've witnessed by this measure the 1911 would have been you know obsolete and or certainly at the bottom edge of obsolescence decades ago but it still hangs in there people still want them because it is good for its intended use and also remember just because something's latest and greatest doesn't mean that it's best or it's gonna last you know, there's a whole list of things, and you could probably Google them more than, and, and have a better list than I can remember, but, you know, I look at a Tesla car. A Tesla car did not make every other car obsolete or obsolescent. It just didn't. I mean, uh, people look at them and say, hey, that's kind of cool, but they have their own set of drawbacks that make the uh, older technology uh, still very, very desirable and, and really very competitive. 
Same thing, remember, if you remember back in the 70s and 80s, they were quadraphonic stereos. You know, this is back when everybody had the big amps and the big speakers, and they had all that stuff. And, of course, you know, if that was stereo, and stereo had the different sounds coming out of the speakers, and you had woofers and tweeters and all this. Well, they went another stage beyond that and had four speakers and that was supposed to have better sound more pure and all the, all the rest of it it was it was better in every way and and you know it was out there on the market but it never made stereos obsolete or obsolescence uh, it never it never replaced them in the marketplace it never really caught on and I don't even know that you can buy one today I think I think uh, most people <laughs> it's it's it was a better mousetrap but it wasn't so much better as to be worth it to get because most people probably couldn't tell the difference anyway I don't I don't think I could especially now and there's all kinds of all kinds of examples of this something came along and it's better but you know what the earlier technology just isn't that bad um, you know it's it happens with happens with all kinds of products uh, automobiles all kinds of stuff like we've said um, there are th certain things that just work and they work so well that even an improvement does not work so much better that it justifies um, replacing all the older ones and in fact the older ones may even still stay in production and that's the way it is with revolvers they're so good that people don't really want to go out and and uh, replace them uh, with with something else if it were true that would have happened a lot of decades ago I think if it were really true that the semi-automatic was so much better than the revolver uh, you wouldn't have seen a revolver after World War II you just wouldn't have so when you hear and, and let's see in range TV is very guilty of this the firearms blog you know all there are a lot of people who, who proffer this it's usually a lot of people who do not have the kind of requisite experience to have seen a lot of things and so um you know take it with a grain of salt is all i can say that that's a um that's just one of those one of those things they uh they like to uh basically bag on boomer lore you know all of this stuff all of this stuff that was conventional wisdom and a lot of it was not true but they called it boomer lore well the the millennial misunderstanding i call it is is that uh you know, newer is not always better. Newer is just not always better. So there you go. That's the uh, that's the word on that. Okay, here comes my favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers. And man, do we have some questions. The first is from our friend Clown Bear, who said, The Altor Pistol. Have you seen the Altor Pistol? And what is your opinion of it? And this is kind of a very exciting question for me because... I have seen the Altor pistol in pictures, and I can tell you exactly what it reminds me of. Um, the Altor pistol is a single-shot pistol. It's got looks like a stainless steel barrel, and kind of a composite grip frame, no real trigger guard on it. Uh, a very interesting, a very interesting kind of little design. But here's the deal with it: uh, I have seen these things before in different slightly different forms but I can tell you what it's derived from I know this on World War II forums uh, 10 20 years ago we used to occasionally see a pistol that looked like an Altor pistol single shot um, 
usually no trigger guard and no sights chambered for something like nine millimeter and we would see these and and they would pop up on these world war ii forums and it was go something like this you know my and insert grandfather great grandfather uncle great uncle cousin whatever brought served in the european theater of operations during world war ii and brought home this pistol i've done some research and i know about the liberator pistol this seems to be the same kind of thing only it's german you know is this some kind of last ditch you know german pistol that the werewolves you know the people who were supposed to fight on at the, after the end of the war um is this some kind of last ditch pistol that they would use to go up maybe kill an allied soldier and take his weapon and kind of continue the the guerrilla warfare against the allies after the surrender of germany you know is this some rare prototype or is this some rare limited production of that kind of a weapon and sadly the answer is no what these were in fact uh you you would say what what possible use would a pistol like this have it 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 has no sights it has no trigger guard it's a single shot what could it be used for well in europe they shop and they produce food differently from us you can see where this is going um, basically every little village or every village and smaller villages share one but every village kind of has one and bigger town have a lot of them and we're talking about slaughterhouses and what these guns were actually for you'd bring the animal in basically immobilize it put this right in the middle of their forehead squeeze a trigger and it would fire kill the animal and then it could be butchered okay that's what these are for and and these outdoor pistols look exactly like that and and in fact you know it doesn't it doesn't take a genius to figure out that it's been copied from those because those were cheap they were very very simple and they weren't they weren't you know held to requirements of safety i.e needing a trigger guard or accuracy because you were pushing it right up against the animal's head and that's just what those are and that's what these are now do these pistols have any practical use well, unless you own a slaughterhouse and kind of do it the old-fashioned way, because I think they have other methods now um, uh, of doing that. Um, but unless you're slaughtering animals, I don't know that there's any other real use for that. Uh, I, I would refer back to the earlier part of the podcast here where we're talking about obsolete. And for defense, a single-shot pistol is is obsolete. Um, you know, they're, they're, you just don't have to read about that many shootings to know that some people can be shot multiple times and still uh, fight so a single shot pistol is is obviously not anything that's going to be guaranteed to immobilize an opponent uh, especially if it really I don't know if about Altor pistols I don't know if they have a rifled barrel or not my suspicion would be if they have rifling it's probably not particularly useful and they're not particularly accurate and I think the other thing is I think these are things you squeeze the trigger and then when you release it it fires I believe that's how they work so I I would I would say that uh, that would even make it a a slaughterhouse pistol even more and i think somebody saw it and just figured hey we can crank these things out for about a hundred bucks a piece and and maybe people will buy them i i just can't imagine what they're useful for um the only thing that could possibly come to mind and this is a very very niche application would be people who do trapping 
um, if you have a trap line and you have you know a muskrat or a beaver or, or you know a coyote in a trap and, and you need to dispatch it um, it might be useful for that uh, but other than other than that I can't think of um, I can't think of a single use for these things um, I would not recommend anybody buy one I just can't think of any purpose again um, you know you can if these things cost I think I saw $109 a piece okay and it's that's probably like a 380 or 9 millimeter I would much rather have a heritage rough rider six shot 22 revolver and I think you can even get the 22 magnum revolver get it at least with a magnum cylinder I would much 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 rather have that than one of these so uh, that's the that's the story on those but those those have been around before um, I think at the end of the war just as I'm remembering you know they, they, they rounded up weapons from the German civilians you know they were they were kind of afraid of, a, of an insurrection um, or insurgency kind of like what we saw in Iraq and they rounded up weapons and so a lot of these little slaughterhouse proprietors probably said hey look I'm not gonna get in trouble for having this you know I'm I'm not gonna get in that kind of trouble so here here you go here you go mr. American GI it's a nine millimeter pistol have a have at it it's yours and I'm sure that a lot of GIs were probably looking at that and didn't really know what they were or but were intrigued by them or kept it as a keepsake or, or some other reason and they come back and then their original purpose was either unknown or has been lost over the years and then they resurface occasionally but that is what they are for that is exactly what they are for so another question have you seen the vis 100 pistol from poland i've seen it and man is that thing ugly <laughs> it is it is not you know there are a lot of pistols that have some very very pleasing lines to them you know they, going back to the what we mentioned earlier the walther ppk you know it has that beautiful those beautiful kind of streamlined or you know beautiful look to it well this pistol has none of those uh it's a 15 shot nine millimeter i think it's probably dasa type of type of pistol looks i'm, I'm sure it's serviceable poles make good stuff i mean they make good stuff i, I remember when i was in the balkans uh, I was in an organization that had uh, uh, poles in it, and it was, you know, kind of, it was kind of very interesting because they still had 762 by 39 AKs then. They were not yet part of NATO, but they were free from the Soviet Union. Had been free from the Warsaw Pact for only, for only like four or five years. So, you know, it was kind of, kind of neat talking to them. It was like talking, you know, kind of opening that, that well, you know, what's it like on the other side. And uh, I remember a uh, Polish officer who was a very, very squared away individual. I mean, this guy, this guy was, was the deal. And uh, we were looking at, I, I was, of course, showing him my M9, which even if you don't like M9s, I like M9s, but if you don't like them, you even have to admit that they are very, very finely made and, and really a very impressive piece of, of um, engineering and, and manufacture. And he showed me his P64, this horrid little thing that looked like it had been made in a, it looked like it had been made in a garage. I mean, it looked like, it looked like something I would make with, you know, my kind of skills. If you put me on a lathe and a, 
in a in a machine you know with machine tools and things and said here build a pistol that that's probably something that i would come up with uh on a good day on a good day so i, I remember just looking at that going oh this is horrid I, I mean it shot but it really wasn't that great and uh you know but to the credit their other weapons were were actually first rate i mean i really i was very impressed with the polish army when i i would go out with them on patrols i would ride in the bmps and and all this i was very very impressed with uh with them very good soldiers very but they do have you know sometimes sometimes the equipment was a little bit wanting um and that was wanting their, their ak rifles that were, were very excellent so um but anyway, this looks <laughs> this this looks to me like it must have come from the same design bureau or have some sort of roots to it because it is it is kind of uh, very unattractive, very uh, unpleasing, and uh, uh, we'll see where it goes. But you know, I'm sure it works because their stuff works. Their stuff works really good. So yes, I've seen it. Um, I think it's ugly, but it probably works very very well. All right. Here is another question, and this is a ah, this is one that always goes back to this. Actually, goes back to in range, really. Okay. Should the U.S. Army have used some form of lever action rifle in the Indian Wars? Okay. There's two answers to that. One is they probably could have gotten away with it. Um, probably could have gotten away with it in the cavalry. You know, where it's carried in a uh, uh, scabbard and where they do a lot of close range fight, fighting uh, a 73 might have been a, in in one of the whatever pistol caliber wonder wonder that was if they had that and a you figure a 4440 Schofield revolver and a 4440 Winchester 73 lever action carbine for a cavalry trooper would would have been pretty decent armament pretty decent armament um for the the infantry there's no lever gun of that era that was going to be worth a hoot um, they were all too frail and i know that there are people out there who love the 73 and i shoot a i've shot a 73 enough to know that it's it's pretty weak action so it was never going to be in a cartridge that you could um use for infantry purposes and i think that was the part of the reason with the 76 was uh you know it was just kind of a scaled up 73 so you know it, it was it could have been a little better but you know the the two problems it would have kept it three problems three problems number one the tube magazine you dent the tube you got a problem you know you just you got a problem and there are actually people people who you know funny part is if you have an old lever gun and you have a a dent in it. The people who rep can repair that really well are people who uh, repair musical instruments, like um, certain woodwind instruments and things. They have the kind of tools that can take that uh, um, that can take that dent out, which is kind of an interesting side fact. But no, that that the tube tube magazines dent too much in military use. Just not going to be usable. The second thing is uh, firing a lever action prone. You have to turn the gun sideways to, to use the lever, unless you're, you know, way up off the, way up off the ground. So it's it's very inconvenient to use, um, in the prone position, which is where a lot of soldiers are, are trained to shoot from, because your silhouette's lower, uh, your gun's more stable, and and 
a lot of a lot of reasons that the prone position is a preferred fighting uh, position with the rifle. Uh, the next the next uh, thing is it, it was the sights are complicated; they're exposed. Um, just the general robustness of the uh, the action and the gun; uh, those were those were the three things. Why it was never going to get used. Uh, probably a fourth reason, which had nothing to do with the gun, but had to do with with you know military matters in general, is the fact that you know it's it's one thing to be out there fighting the Indians. It's one thing, you know, the the Indians were the Indians, okay? Um, but the army at least had to pay some pay some nod, give some nod of attention, or pay some attention to the fact that they might be fighting another conventionally armed european style army you know um whether it is in canada or whether it is in mexico um much like we did in the spanish american war you know the spanish american war the spanish army was was a modern uh relatively modern european army and you just uh, you're probably not going to take winchester 73s and fight them when they have you know a longer range infantry rifle um that's just the way that goes uh, the only so you know you needed something like the trapdoor the british needed something like the snyder enfield and later the uh, martini henry um and, and there's there's all kinds of examples of of these you know the the german uh, 1874 mauser you know you needed a fairly power a remington rolling block another one you needed a gun that was fairly powerful and single shot because you masked your troops uh you didn't need they didn't need to be repeaters but they needed to have range and power so that's that's why military rifles looked the way they did were they ideal for the west no but they were they were serviceable so that's it and in my mind i think the only lever action that really did well in military service was the uh model 1895 which was really a uh you know a much different design it uses a box magazine and a few other things and it does have um it does have the the problem of of operating the lever from the prone but you know that's and the action was much more robust so it, it overcame uh several of the problems that earlier lever actions would have faced so no um the people who advocate that, and I know it's it's in range TV and a few other places, they, they are in fantasy land. And that's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. Okay, here is another question. Is the 7.62 NATO slash 308 Winchester outdated? I'm glad they didn't use obsolete or obsolescent. <laughs> glad they, glad they used outdated. Uh, the answer is no. Um, for most purposes for which it was designed it's fine um to go to the the 308 winchester is a sporting cartridge no sporting cartridge is really outdated uh, they're all usable for their intended purpose the nice part about the 308 winchester still does what it was designed to do which is give 30-06 like performance in short action guns you know by utilizing uh, more efficient powders so there you go a lot of people like short action guns so it'll it'll still remain a very popular caliber uh in military service i still think that uh, although the for sniping reasons i think there are other cartridges that will that will eventually replace it um i still think it's a good medium kind of a good medium range sniper it's powerful 
you know, very manageable recoil and a lot of things. Uh, it's an excellent machine gun cartridge, won't be replaced for those. The general purpose machine gun will still be in 7.62 NATO. Um, you know, the, the 6.5 Creedmoor rate may replace it in some sniping rolls, but, you know, what remains to be seen. You know, there's more than just accuracy in sniping. There's also how much damage do you do and what's the practical re the reality of the range you're going to gonna shoot in. So I really think that that was a... Uh, um, I really think that that's you know where it's it's still going to be there for quite a while and you know the fact of the matter is it's like 762 by 39 it's it's there and a lot of countries don't just change things for the sake of change goes back to what i was saying sometimes something that's newer it may be on paper in every other way better but is it better enough to warrant replacing everything that came before it and i don't think so in this case okay here is another question and this one I know quite a bit about. Uh, what is the deal on Smith & Wesson 624 revolver cylinders? There was a recall that some of them had inferior steel. And are some of those revolvers still out there? Okay, here is what happened with that. And I got I know this from some inside baseball stuff. Here is the real deal. What happened was when they first of all you go back. The 624 is an end frame, uh, 44 special revolver with the skinny barrel, all stainless steel, and it was kind of a uh, a brainchild, or it was made by Smith and Wesson at the urging of the gunwriter named Skeeter Skelton. He was a big 44 special guy. He liked end frames, and he liked stainless steel. So this was this was like his kind of dream gun. He thought this was going to be the the coolest gun and would you know just be be the best and in many ways he was right it's it's an it's an excellent gun they made them in um i think they only came in a 6.5 inch barrel and that's a very nice barrel length you can still carry in the holster but it's very long it gives a lot of good accuracy um you know it um had the usual smith and wesson adjustable rear sight it's an end frame. It, as a matter of fact, it often gets mistaken for a 629 44 Magnum. And in this case, that happened too. What happened was a subcontractor supplied Smith & Wesson with some stainless steel that was not quite up to... It, it's different specification. It was made to a different specification. In 44 Special, it was fine. But the f problem was some of this steel got into the production process and it was all bored it was all chambered for 44 magnum for which the safety margin was a lot thinner um, some of these 44 magnet now to make things worse some of these 44 magnum cylinders were fitted to not only 629 44 magnum revolvers but also to 624 44 special revolvers and there's no way you would really know unless you tried to chamber a 44 magnum round in your 44 special revolver which most people really don't do you know most people really don't do it and so they figured out of about 20,000 revolvers i think they figured that probably 500 of them had these these mismatch cylinders made out of a slightly different formula of stainless steel now if they were if they were just 
chambered for 44 special, no problem. The safety margin was there; it was a-okay. But since a lot of them were since since a lot of them were chambered in 44 magnum, they decided that the safety margin was too small, so they they initiated a recall and they recalled 629s and 624s. The story in the media somehow got convoluted that it was inferior steel on the 624, but it was not. It was actually it was actually the fact that they had steel that was not good for 44 magnum um, chambered, and the and the cylinders were chambered in 44 magnum. So they went through, and what they did was they they um, they found these things. They replaced the cylinder, and the guns that came in that didn't need to be replaced. They they basically just said no. This is this is not the ones we're looking for. They stamped the box, not the cylinder. They stamped the box and they sent it back too. So, if you have a gun, you have no way of knowing that it's been inspected by Smith and Wesson unless you have the original box and it's got a red C on it. Uh, now, if you have one of these, if you have a 624 in 44 special and it chambers a 44 Magnum round, you need to get in touch with Smith and Wesson. Um, or just don't shoot anything but specials in it uh, because I don't think that they replace those cylinders anymore I think they they kind of take it in trade on a new gun so I don't I don't really know what their policy is but you might want to check on that before you send it in so that's the deal there and I think they recalled and and th this this information still out there on the net of which ones that they want to recall and everything but don't worry you don't have an inferior 44 special chambered cylinder what you have is a cylinder that is chambered for 44 magnum which is the safety margin is too thin so and it affected the 629 as well as the 624 but the 624 got that that gave it a bad rap put a bad taste in people's mouth and i think they only made them for a few years and then they were they were gone they were absolutely gone um they're very very nice guns very impressive guns too i mean uh when somebody sees one they, they they're immediately drawn to it it's kind of like the uh um kind of like the brass frame cap and ball revolvers you know people people are just kind of drawn to those by the by the virtue of the finish and the way they look so that is the dealio on the 624 okay here's our last question and our last question is what do you think is the most interesting type of gun which is not currently popular Hmm, that's interesting. At first, I thought, well, that's kind of a kind of an odd because most interesting guns are very popular. I'm trying to think of something that's kind of fallen out of fashion, and the only thing that really immediately jumps to my mind is um, I'm I'm fascinated by really nice quality um, single shot black powder rifles, things like. You know, sharps, rolling blocks, even trapdoors. I, I really like them also. And I, and I think that they're kind of, while they're certainly not cheap and people aren't giving them away, they're not really all that popular. I think that uh, if you look around, I think you can find a trapdoor for about $1,000. You know, an original U.S. military trapdoor in good, in decent shape, good shape, you know. Uh you can also buy what what would really fascinate me is I think for about fifteen hundred dollars you can get uh, 
you know, the Sharps long range business rifle. I think Peter Sol Peter Soli makes one of those and uh, sells it through Cimarron. And, and there's, there's all kinds of others. Um, the cautions I have is be careful of who makes them and the quality. And some of the custom ones are, are quite fine, but you know, you can have a four or five year wait. I understand. And, and, um, you know, pay several thousand dollars, but I think a good, you know, those things are, they come in interesting cartridges, like 4570 doesn't really excite me that much, but it is very, very practical. It, it's, it's probably the best one to actually use, but 4590, 45110, you know, kind of that Quigley Sharps, those are, those are very cool guns with the, uh, uh, Vernier sights and all that. And, you know, they were kind of popular back in the, um, late 80s early 90s they became very popular with um you know that kind of uh, metallic silhouette shooting you know black powder cartridge metallic silhouette shooting that was kind of an interesting uh um phenomenon that went on there um you know but that's kind of i think that's kind of receded somewhat i don't think that that's got the following it has and a lot of the people into precision rifles are obviously into the modern ones and not the uh, the very old ones but it's amazing the amount of um accuracy and precision that could be gained from the the sights and the cartridges and the the trigger pulls they have they have a lot of qualities that really fine guns have you know they have to have an excellent trigger pull they have to have excellent sights they have to have you know a very very high manufacturer barrel so they fascinate me for that reason plus i, I just think that they uh they they look very cool and and um obviously invoke that whole kind of you know cool part of the old west where people shot at things long range so uh, really like it really you know that whole Billy Dixon thing of you know shooting the I think it was an Indian on horseback at 500 uh, 1538 yards you know and, and some of the and some of the uh, you know fights where you know you would have 30 or 40 buffalo hunters and they'd be attacked by several hundred Indians and you know all those kind of things were very uh, very exciting you know very very the part of that romanticized uh, old west so you know, a Sharps rifle like that would be very, very um, interesting. Uh, I'm not so much interested in the Borchart rifles. They came a little later. They're still very cool, though. Um, rolling blocks are very, very cool. They're they're actually. Um, I took apart a seven millimeter rolling block one time. They're they're actually uh, pretty simple and, and comparatively crude. You would think that it was it was more, but um, they're they're very they're fun rifles to shoot. Absolutely fun, and, and of course the trapdoor is fun. The uh, the one that that I really uh, am kind of jonesing for uh, is a Snyder Enfield, but they're they're not known for any kind of accuracy, not any kind of long range shooting uh the martini henry could could do some uh but i think the the drawback on that is are the sights you know the service style sights are are um, not really going to be a precision sight but you get that uh the tang sight on a sharps and you know the really finely made ones and they they are not cheap either um they are not cheap either i, I think they cost four or five hundred dollars for the you know finally because they're all handmade they're handmade and they're very very precise um 
I think those those are very expensive and but with those you can you know a click is a click and you can get on target and you know if you learn the trajectory you can really really do some uh, very impressive shooting so uh, those are those are uh, that's the cool gun I think that is kind of cool right now the market's cool on those and uh, you know it's it's uh, something that may pick up here in the next few years or something and when it becomes popular you know the prices do only one thing they go up through the roof so anyway that's it for this edition of old school guns remember you can always uh, leave a question for me at podbean in the comments i'll get to those and you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com that's kbmakel at aol.com but for right now this is old school guns out